Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. In this episode, I speak with my good friend, Paul Sullivan. Paul wrote the wildly popular Wealth Matters column in the New York Times and currently writes the Money Game column for Golf Magazine. We certainly talk about those experiences, but the focus of our discussion is on his exciting new project, The Company of Dads. This company is the first platform dedicated to creating a community for lead dads. Its mission is to help lead dads feel less isolated and more confident in having made the choice to take on the bulk of the parenting and family duties. This exciting new venture is ready to launch in February. Welcome aboard, Paul. Hey, Fraser. Thanks for having me. Well, it's fun to catch up as always. And you are in the midst of a very new, exciting project that I want the listeners to hear about. And it dovetails nicely with your background, with your different columns. Take us through a little bit. It's in the company of dads, and this is your community for lead fathers. Tell us a little bit about where the idea came from and, and what you're doing. Yeah. Thanks, Fraser. So, you know, as you alluded to, you know, for 13 years, I was the Wealth Matters columnist at the New York Times, and that's how most people knew me. But for all 13 of those years, I was also what I call the lead dad in my house. And what that means is I was I was a primary parent, you know, and, and I joke, you know, don't call me Mr. Mom, but that's how most people think about it. But I had this wonderful, prestigious job. I wrote a couple of books. I spoke at conferences, but I had a much more flexible schedule than my wife. My wife works in asset management. And, you know, when a client called, the client called. I could, you know, I knew when my column was due every week. I knew when a book was going to be due. I knew I was going to give a talk. And I really enjoyed it. But during COVID, when our kids were home, like everybody else who has kids home learning, it became really challenging. It was really lonely. And I said, you know, lead dads are kind of like, you know, there, there are a lot of us, but we're, we're quiet about it. Whereas a typical go-to-work dad has this community, you know, he's, he's riding the train, he's having lunch, he's having drinks after work, a stay-at-home mom, tons of community within our community, working moms, there are, you know, working mom groups, but this sort of group, which is about 25 to 30% of, of parents in the United States, this group that I call lead dads who work at all different levels, we didn't have a community. And so I started really noodling on, on this idea during COVID. And of course, I thought it would first be a book, but when I workshopped the idea, I workshopped it with the only group that I thought would be really honest to me, and that was senior female executives. And I went to them because if they were a senior female executive, I figured they either were, maybe they're hitting it out of the park and they could hire you know, multiple nannies and housekeepers to help with the kids, or maybe they had a parent who was living with them. But I had a hunch that what they probably had was a, a spouse who had a more flexible schedule than they did. And that was really the sort of confirmation of the idea when I talked to a couple of these women who said, yeah, you know, we have... You know, our husbands are there, they're the lead dad. And then one of them turned to me and said, it's a great idea, but the worst thing you possibly do is write a book. It's not a book, it's a business. And that's when it really clicked. And so I've organized a company of dads along the principles of content, community, and commerce. So everybody knows Disney, which is content to commerce. I'm inserting community in there. And the content, it launches in February. It's all going to be you know, podcast, video written content. The community will be hosted on Discord at first, so it'll be an online community, but the idea is to move it quickly to sort of geography. So we're having a, our first event in Connecticut in June. And then hopefully over time to have, you know, sort of 
lead dad or the company of dad sponsored events around the country based on your hobby. Do you like to golf? You like to ski, you like to play tennis, whatever. And then the commerce part will be starting out with you know typical merchandise, but there's also an arm that I call the academy, which is doing talks and seminars at companies, at companies who need people to sort of, you know, explain what I'm doing as part of their broader, you know, gender equity strategy. Oh, really cool. And as you start building the community, you're, you've got your launch sort of coming in February and beyond. How do you hit the ground running so that people understand what's happening and you can kind of build that fast momentum or critical mass? Yeah, I, I hit the ground sprinting. You know me, Fraser. We play golf. I'm not the fastest runner in the world. So, you know, but I was very fortunate. When I told my editors at the New York Times that I wanted to step down, they were super supportive. And I said, look, I'm not going to the Wall Street Journal. I love the New York Times. I love the Journal too, but I'm not going to a competitor. I'm starting something new. And they let me wind the column down on my own timeline. And then a couple of weeks before the final column ran, they reached out to me and said, we'd like you to write a Times Insider. This is super nerdy newspaper speak, but a Times Insider runs on the second page of the first section of the paper and obviously it runs online, but it's, it's how the sausage gets made. It's, you know, the behind the scenes, you know, written by a reporter or a columnist or they're being interviewed. And it was wonderful. I was flattered. It was super prestigious, but I thought they would just want me to write what it was like to be a columnist for 13 years, which would have been fine. You know, people would like to hear that be interesting, but they said, no, 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 you can write about that for a little bit, but people seem to really like your column. So why don't you tell them what you're going to do next? Now, let's just back up for a second. Imagine anybody listening to this. You leave your job and your soon-to-be ex-employer says, hey, on your way out, if you could just email everybody you know from the company email and tell them where your next job is going to be so they can find you, that would be great. I mean, this doesn't happen. What planet are we on? Leave now. Yeah, <laughs> leave now. Your email is shut off. Your belongings will be mailed to you. You're done. And that really helped me. Jumpstart it because when that piece ran, it was further proof of concept because I received, you know, hundreds of emails from men who identify as lead dads, senior female executives who either had a lead dad in the support role or senior female executives who wanted their husband to become more of a lead dad. And then companies, companies who said, this is really interesting. We'd like you to come in and, and talk about this as part of our broader DEI strategy. And so once that happened, I said, okay, we got to go. And so I had two people working on it in the beginning. And pretty quickly, those two people became eight people. And we've just raced to get it done. And I've been super fortunate. It's been sort of, you know, 95% positive from both men and women who I've spoken to that, you know, this is something that's that's needed. I mean, I don't know if this would have been the same venture two years ago, but after we've all been through COVID, after we've seen how things need to change, the reception for the company of dads has been been amazing. And in the DEI programs and so on that you've reached out to the corporate level, obviously receptive. They want to be sort of in tune with where modern families are moving on on different components. How do you work with them exactly? Is that that content strategy where, where you speak to them and provide coursework or different communities, or is there something else going on there? Sure. There, there are a couple of different options. I mean, one is the straight up inspirational slash keynote speech to explain it, put the idea out there. The second is more of a seminar type model of, of going in probably for you know half day, but you know, I'm not going to say no to a full day. I've conceived it as a, as a half day to really work with the executives they think would, would benefit most from it. And then there's a third component that I jokingly call lead dad bootcamp. And that's more of a, a program geared at men to help them realize that, you know, if they're doing 5% of the stuff at home, if they get it up to 25% or 35%, 
that's going to make a huge difference in everyone's life. But you know, all in all, every effort in the company of dads is really striving to one thing, and that's just to normalize this, to normalize the role that a man can be the lead dad and still work full-time, part-time, or devote all of his time to his family, and it's okay. And so that's the broadest mission is to normalize this because we're not going to have real gender equity until it's perceived in the wider culture as something normal that that the dad is doing parenting, that the parenting doesn't always have to fall to a mom or a caregiver. So as I'm brainstorming here, this is an exciting idea. Is this something that bleeds into the financial services industry or the wealth management industry for those people who advise families that are that have this situation and are, I wouldn't say grappling with the problem, but maybe the traditional advice is not tailored to this and maybe maybe what your curriculum can help provide better advice for the advisor to the family or maybe give the family a little bit different prism with which they're receiving you know financial planning or asset management advice a hundred percent fraser it's, it's like we rehearsed this which for the the, the listeners we did not um but <laughs> i've been approached by all different types of companies and every company will you know, benefit from this, you know, particularly consulting companies where people are traveling a lot. But the wealth management industry was in my sights from the beginning, maybe because I was a Wealth Matters columnist for 13 years, but also because I realized that, you know, if I could talk to the advisors about this, both male and female advisors, it would help them and it would help whoever they work for, but it will really also help their clients because it is that value add. You know, you, you and I know this, people who try to you know, live and die on this quarter's returns, that's a fool's game. And most people have, have moved away from that, but you need to give something else. And this something else is, you know, what sometimes gets referred to as the softer stuff, but I don't think it's really soft. I think it's, you know, essential. And so these types of seminars, it's, it's just, you know, helping people become more aware of the world that we live in now and to help them, you know, help those families that the advisors work with to understand what the company of dads is trying to do and to normalize it. And, you know, I've had so many conversations already with people and it becomes this aha moment of either I need this, I want this, or just as importantly, huh, I'd never thought of that. I guess you're right. Well, the thing I really am sort of enjoying hearing about is this is sort of taking these behavioral finance concepts and dealing with biases and dealing with all sorts of things that that lead people to irrational decisions. And it's taking a real life set of circumstances and applying it directly without getting too dorky and having to list out 20 different things you're doing wrong. You're providing fact patterns of, of ways to do things right. Exactly. And I'm also trying to sort of allow people, whether they're men or women, to do to, to the highest and best use of their time. I mean, we wouldn't expect Tesla to start making, you know, chocolate bars, though, who knows, Elon Musk could have, you know, a brand new chocolate bar that works. And then, you know, we wouldn't expect Apple. So they say that we wouldn't expect Apple to come out with a line of, you know, fancy chocolates. And we all do things, you know, differently. For my family, you know, it's kind of like I'm the president of that old ad for the hair club for men. You know, not only am I a client, but I'm also a president. Like, not only am I the founder of the company of dads, but I'm also lead dad myself. So, you know, I, I have this experience as to what it's been like in a world where the go to work dads don't always understand you and the stay at home moms don't always welcome you. And my view is why is that? Why not? What, what I'm not trying to do, what is the lead dad trying to do? Lead dad's trying to raise his kids, you know, keep the house together, work in whatever capacity. He works and help his spouse reach, you know, her full potential. I mean, that's what any human would want. And, and for years, it's been, you know, the other way around. But we're in 2022. Why can't we shift up the, the narrative? 
Well, your timing, intentional or not, is particularly interesting. COVID has, as Jim O'Shaughnessy has said, has created a big reshuffle and people sort of have a much better understanding of what their different occupations are within a family and there's a lot of close proximity. That's I think your advice and your your methodology and sort of your way of looking at things, I think I think there'd be a great reception for it right now. Yeah, I mean the the numbers of the last census were you know five, they're five years old, but it's the, the twenty five to thirty percent number of men already doing this. But we know from anecdotal research that that number has increased during the pandemic. And you know, not to promote my podcast on your podcast, but in my first podcast, I talked to this professor at the University of Georgia who did research on just this. She was able to get inside families at the very start of the pandemic and understand how they split up the parenting and the household roles and what it did. And these were all fam- two-income families, so both the husband and the wife were working. And, you know, lo and behold, the husband not helping out, that dynamic didn't work so well. Go figure. But it, it was really interesting. And she was able to get this sample size early on that showed, okay, this is, you know, the dynamic that works best. And it wasn't, it was sort of, you know, lead parent doing most, but not all of the work. And she found that you know, in many cases that lead parent was a mom, but in many cases that lead parent was the dad. And that led to it was interesting, both obviously a better outcome at home, but this is the important part for corporations. It also made people more productive. So the dad doing nothing was not productive. It wasn't like he was had all of his time just devoted to his job and he would be hitting it out of the park. He was actually less productive than the dad who was doing more of the stuff at home and helping out. Now, she doesn't quite have the exact answer as to why that was, but you, you kind of make suppositions. But that was the key point. Like, just being there and only working doesn't make you a better worker. If you are not contributing to what's going on with the parenting and the family, you're not going to reach your full potential as either a human or, or a worker. So you, you come from writing two columns, The Wealth Matters and then your golf magazine column, and now you've started this business and you're, and you're jumping with both feet into full-bore entrepreneurism. What has that been like and what's been different? What it's been like is it's been exhilarating. And I found that after so much of my life, you know, I'm 49, so 48, 49 in March, 25 years of my life, I've been a journalist. I've always had a very immediate deadline. I found that it's been exhilarating not to have that that weekly deadline as I did at the Times or a monthly deadline as I did at, you know, Golf Magazine. It's been able to sort of think and build something out. Now, has every day been perfect? No. Um, you know, <laughs> But I'm pretty good at delegating and I, I'm more of a manager than a micromanager. And so, yeah, I've been lucky. I had a, a team that's been able to build out the platform. We had a few hiccups in the road with the marketing, but just this week we brought on a, a new marketing person who's incredibly senior and, and she's really engaged in this. And I think that's going to make a difference. But it's, I think the one thing that journalism taught me is that when you have a, a weekly column in the New York Times, something has to be in that space every week because there is a space in the paper and then more there's that slot online which has advertisers around it they expect to see that same product every week and the biggest lesson i took away from that is you know of the 608 columns i wrote not all 608 were fantastic and so you learn that the perfect is the enemy of the good and that's one of the lessons that i try to convey to the team and that i think to myself like I'm just trying out things. We talk in three months, I'll know exactly what's resonating. We can measure everything. 
But right now, I don't know what's going to resonate the most with lead dads. I don't know what's going to resonate the most with working moms. But I do know that if I don't try it and try all kinds of different options and, you know, put myself out there, I'll never get the data to know. So it's really remembering that the perfect is the enemy of the good. And that kind of lets me push on on those days when it's when it's rocky as hell. Right. So going back to the Wealth Matters column, which dealt with a lot of wealth management topics dealing with the high net worth, the ultra high net worth. I try to emulate some of the concepts that you wrote about in my podcast, just having a wide set of antennae to talk about a lot of different issues. You wrote 608 of those. What kinds of universal truths did you take out of it? What do you look at in your body of work with that and say, gosh, you know, there are lots of things here that just resonate and resonate over time and consistently. What really sticks out in your mind there? Number one is everyone hates to pay taxes. (laughs) The columns that go back, so many of them had to do with taxes. The second is everyone, no matter your wealth level, if you have kids, you're worried about your kids. And I found that the people who had the most success as parents, as you know, witnessed by, you know, their children, you know, sort of developing and, and, and launching into their own lives, the people who had the most success at that were the people who were the most open. You know, they didn't necessarily say, hey, mom makes X amount of dollars a year, but they talked really openly about money and the value of money and the converse that they didn't hide it. Because there's so many people who still try to hide, you know, their wealth. But we have this thing called Zillow, and that tells you how expensive your house is. We have this thing called the Google, and the Google will tell you exactly how expensive your car is. And, you know, your 12-year-old can figure that out. And so those people who try to hide their wealth and weren't open about it, they struggled a lot. And then uh, I think the third big takeaway was no matter how wealthy you are, everybody thinks that people are wealthier than them. But they always, unless you're Elon Musk, I guess, but everybody loves a good voyeuristic read. We love to sort of detach. I mean, my my column had a lot of news you can use. It had a lot of, you know, poignant stories about individuals either succeeding or struggling. But man, you write a column about a giant yacht or you write a column about somebody uh, custom making perfume just for herself. Those things take off. You know, I had one on a pet spa that was like 250 bucks a, a night for your dog. People love that. You know, it gives them an escape. So I think no matter what, you know, taxes kids and and giving ourselves a break and and having an escape now and again. Couldn't be in more agreement there. I mean, we we knew it back with Robin Leach and Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. You know, there's a reason why that was so successful. Unique windows into crazy worlds. So let's pivot quickly to something we both enjoy a lot, which is golf and your golf column. How did that come about? And how do you do you continue to do that? And does that fit in with your current schedule? TBD on whether I can continue it. You know, I love golf so much. But you know, as it stands now, I'm so incredibly busy and kind of directing all my energy to the company of dads. But how that came about was, and I look back, it's a crazy story. So I had begged the New York Times, for years and years and years to let me write about golf. And I was like that annoying kid who's sort of tugging at your pant leg saying, come on, come on, come on, let me do it, let me do it. And finally, one of the editors said, you know, fine, I'll take your pitch on the US Open. The US Open that year was at Pebble Beach. And I wanted to write a story. This is when, you know, Mike Davis was not going to be the setup guy anymore. This guy, John Bodenhammer, was going to be the setup guy. And so super nerdy story. I wanted to write about John Bodenhammer, what it'd be like to set up the U.S. Open. Now, this is quick background, you know, golf geekdom, but, you know, the USGA has been, you know, beaten up for years about their setups for the U.S. Opens. They're too hard. They're not fair. And so here's the new guy. So I flew out 
to Pebble Beach, not a very tough assignment at all. And uh, I was twisting my arm to do that. And on the first tee at Pebble, I was there with Jason Gore, former PGA Tour player, shot 59, but had just joined the USA, USGA as a player rep. And Jason and I were about to go off the first tee at Pebble, and the USGA media person said, do you mind if somebody else joins you? I'm like, yeah, whatever, you know. And walking across is this guy dressed entirely in blue with a white bucket hat, and he looks like a Smurf. Like, there's a Smurf <laughs> coming at me. And he is going to, he's here because, and he's got this film crew all around him. He's going to break 90 from the tips at Pebble. Now, Pebble is not the longest course in the world, so, you know, but the fairways, instead of being, you know, I don't know, 30 yards wide are now 15 yards wide. And the rough, instead of being an inch, is, is four inches. So this is three weeks before the U.S. Open. So it's challenging. And, you know, he gets up there, beautiful swing, rolls the first one off the tee, gets up, hits the next one, rolls the second one. And, and we're off. And I'm like, boy. You know, this guy is is struggling, but super nice guy. And he picks it up. And by about the third hole, I noticed that his film guys keep taking the golf cart from this pregnant woman who is following them. So I've got three daughters. So I go up and I introduce myself and I say, so I am. And I say, you know, I, I notice these guys keep taking your cart. Do you want me to say something to him? Do, do you want to ride? And she says, oh, no, no. I like to walk. And besides, if I want the cart, I'll just take it back because they all work for me. And I said, oh, I said, who are you? And she is Ashley Mayo. And Ashley Mayo is a senior person at, at golf, but she's also a real golf influencer and a, a wonderful person. And she and I started talking. And I was playing, you know, so well at Pebble. I think I was, you know, I was one over standing on the eighth tee. And, you know, John Bonehammer comes up to me and says, I think we're going to have to have a handicap check. I, I don't think you're putting all your scores. And promptly, then I promptly rolled the ball off the tee. But I'm playing really well. And on 14, which is anyone knows Pebble's par five, I hit two great shots. And I had a little wedge left into the green. And she actually comes up and says, you know, Paul, would you want to write a, a column for us, like a, a golf and money column? Now, you know me, Fraser. So you know what a golf nerd I am. And I'm like, yeah, I would love to do this. This would be great. You could, you could pay me and like use tour edition golf balls. I don't <laughs> care. I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And I'm so excited that I get up with the wedge, you know, 100 some odd yards away. And I nearly put it out of bounds, which is an almost impossible like shot to hit because out of bounds is so far when you're that close to the green. But I'm so hopped up, and that's how it started. And it's you know been it's 2019. It's been a you know a ton of fun because I it's, it gave me license to talk to you know so many people I love in the game of golf, but also to kind of you know write the stories that I was curious about myself about golf. Oh, a dream job. If I were a better writer, I'd be angling for it myself. But no way I could compete. It's <laughs> but. I'll also add this because, you know, the world of golf is small and tight and people really help each other out. The guy who was a Smurf, he ended up shooting 90 on the nose, but his name is Eric Anders Lang. And he has this company called the Random Golf Club. And as I started the company of dads, it's a golf community. Eric has been incredibly generous. I went to Austin a couple months ago and he sort of put me in touch with all his people and, and really, you know, taught me a lot about how to create a community the way Eric has with the Random Golf Club. So, it, you know, good things say, this will come as a surprise to nobody, but good things happen at Pebble Beach. That's right. <laughs> 
Nothing bad ever happens. My one time playing there, the round took six hours and it was fogged in and I didn't get to see anything. And I'm just like, oh, I hate Pebble Beach. I'm the only person who's had a bad experience there. (laughs) But anyway, so let's circle back. The Company of Dads, remind us again, when does it launch? How do we keep track of, of this project? Yep. Thank you. The Company of Dads launches in February, thecompanyofdads.com, or you can go to Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, wherever, in the Company of Dads, and follow the content. And But go to the site, become part of the community, join the Discord, and let's, let's start talking about this issue and make it normal for men to be lead dads. Excellent. Paul, really psyched for your success on this, rooting for it super hard. And Let's stay in touch. We're going to have to go through our annual rock, paper, scissors on who gets strokes and who doesn't the next time we see each other in play. (laughs) Perfect. Thank you so much, Frazier. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.